Well, good morning. How many of you here right now were not here last night? All right. Well, welcome. Uh, good to see you, and it's great to be back at 12th Avenue Baptist Church. Um, I have retired from my leadership role at Columbia International University, but I still bring information about the school. So if you're interested in studying there or studying online, because our courses are all online as well, our school is located in Columbia, South Carolina. We have 2,000 students there, and um, I have some more information down front if anybody wants. It's all free, so feel free to come and ask me for it. I am so excited about the message tonight. I would like to give it right now, but we're just going to have to wait because it's the second half of what I'm going to share with you this morning. So I hope you'll be back tonight for the meal and for the time again in God's word. So this morning and this evening, I have prayerfully decided to ask and answer a critical question. So the title of our Bible message this morning is in the form of a question, and here it is. Is Jesus Christ really the only way of salvation for the whole world? Is Jesus Christ really the only way of salvation for the whole world? And not to keep you in suspense, the answer to this question is an unqualified yes. And with the Lord's help, I'm going to tell you from the Bible why. So before we jump in, let's pray one more time together. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we pray for Uganda. We've just seen that country before our eyes on the video. We pray for the church there. We pray for the expansion of the gospel there. Lord, we pray for the two missionary couples that shared with us this morning that you will do exceedingly abundantly above all that they can ask or think in the work that you have given them. We thank you that in the revelation of yourself to the human race, you, God Almighty, have made Jesus Christ central in the Trinity. It is through Jesus Christ that you came to us, and it is through Jesus Christ that we come to you. And so in his name, we pray that you will be with speaker and with listener alike over the next few minutes, and we thank you for the answer to this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to look with me at an astounding and categorical statement made by Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament, chapter 14 and verse 6. So if you can turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 14 and verse 6, and here is what that verse tells us. Jesus answered, and if you read the verses just before this, you'll see that Jesus is speaking to one of his disciples, Thomas, who has just asked him how to get to heaven. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, any serious and thoughtful reading of this Bible verse, John 14, 6, begs this question. Is Jesus Christ 
really the only way of salvation for the whole world. Think about that. Now look again closely at what Jesus says here. He's speaking of himself and he says, I am the way no one comes to the Father except through me. Don't you think that sounds narrow? I do. Don't you think that sounds rather exclusive? In fact, in my sermon notes, I had written rather exclusive, and I crossed out the word rather. Exclusive means exclusive. Now, we've um, already had quite a bit in our worship service this morning, and so I want you to do something with me to kind of wake you up for my sermon and so I'd like everyone, please, to take your right hand and make a fist. Now, while your fist is like that, I want you to put your index finger up like this. All right? Now, while your hand's in that position, I want you to stick your arm straight up in the air. Come on. Just stick it up. I wish I had my camera take a picture. All right, you can put it down. Now, you know what that is? That's the one-way sign made popular by the Jesus People Movement on the west coast of the United States back in the early 1960s. It has now become a universal evangelical symbol, which means there's only one way to heaven and one way alone, and that is through Jesus Christ. You can go to a Christian bookstore and buy a leather Bible cover with the one-way hand on it. You can go to a Christian bookstore and buy pressure-sensitive labels, self-adhesive labels with the one-way hand on it. And you can peel them off the page and put it on an envelope that you send through the mail so the postman will see it. I remember driving in my car a number of years ago on a four-lane highway, and um, I was in the passing lane, and there was another car close to me in the shoulder lane, and we came to an intersection where the light had turned red, and so uh, the other car got to the white line first, and he stopped, and then I pulled alongside. But just before I pulled alongside, I saw his bumper sticker, and the sign on his bumper sticker said, Honk if you love Jesus. So I honked. And the guy looks at me and he goes, so I looked back at him and I went, but do we really believe that? Really? And this brings me to um, Sandy's story, part one. That means, of course, that there's a part two, and that will be tonight. Let me tell you part one. When I was a university student, just like this great bunch that's sitting right down here in front of me, 
I went as a summer missionary from South Carolina, where I was studying, to the Chicago suburb of Des Plaines, Illinois. We rented a 1,000-seat old tabernacle on a Methodist campground. We got 30 Bible-believing churches in the greater Chicago area to cooperate together, and all the believers in those churches brought their non-Christian friends to that building every night, and we had a meeting there every night for 30 straight nights. And we packed that place. And we preached the gospel. Now, in order to have a place to stay as a team, um, we rented one of the cottages on that Methodist campground. Now, these were summer homes, so they were very basic. And the, the cottage we rented did not have a kitchen. It had a room on the first floor that had a sink in it and a hot plate that you could plug in the wall and a little um, mini refrigerator. So in the morning, we would get a pan and put water on the hot plate and boil water and have instant tea and coffee. And we would eat, you know, cold cereal and, and have, have bread and jam. And, and then at night, we'd put on a pot of hearty soup and we'd eat soup and bread and cheese and so forth. So in order to have, you know, one decent meal a day, we went to a little family restaurant right on the edge of the campground, and we bought a, a cooked meal at that restaurant. I'll never forget the first day we went into that restaurant. There were 10 of us, and they gave us a big table in the back corner. We all sat down, and right after we sat down, I heard a voice behind me, and it said, Hi, I'm Sandy. I'm your server. I turned around. There was a young lady standing there with a pad and a pen. She looked at me and she said, I've never seen you before. Are you new here? And I said, yeah, we're all new. And she said, oh, what are you guys doing here this summer? And I said, we've come to tell people about Jesus Christ. And she went, ooh. Now, that began a very interesting series of conversations because we ate there every day. Well, about a week later, when we were exiting the restaurant after the noon meal, Sandy, the server, stopped me at the door. She said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. She said, you know, I've been telling some of my friends about what you've been telling me about God and Jesus, and I've shown them some of the literature you gave me. And she said, I was wondering, now, we're not going to come to your meetings in the big building at night. Don't get your hopes up, she said. But... I was wondering, could one night after the big meeting is over and you're back at your cottage, could we come over to your cottage and just kind of hang out and ask you some questions? I said, absolutely. So sure enough, it was a midweek night. The big meeting was over. We were back at our cottage, and here comes Sandy and a bunch of her friends. Now, this cottage that we rented had a front screened-in porch, not very big, no furniture, just a wooden floor screened-in porch. So we invited the kids in, and we all just plopped down on the floor. And we started to talk, and they had some really great questions. And I'll never forget a question that Sandy asked. She was sitting right in the middle of the group. She looked at me, and she said, George Murray, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation for the whole world? And I said, yes. Then she said this. She said, if that is true, 
what about the fact, that's just the way she said it, what about the fact that millions and millions of people living right now have never even once heard of Jesus? What's going to happen to them when they die? What are you going to tell her? What are you going to say? You see, Sandy didn't ask me about people who don't believe in Jesus. She asked me about people who don't know there's a Jesus to believe in. What's going to happen to them when they die? I said, Sandy, wow, that really is a good question. And what you think or what I think about the answer may be right or may be wrong, but what God's Word teaches is always right. And I had my Bible there that night, and I said, if I understand this book correctly, based on passages like John chapter 3, verse 18, Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, and other Old and New Testament passages, Sandy, I believe that every man, woman, boy, or girl living anywhere in the world who's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong and who can make a moral choice if that person dies without receiving Jesus Christ as personal Savior that person will spend eternity in the fires of an everlasting hell. And the minute I said that, Sandy exploded. And I can still hear her voice as it screamed out through the screened-in porch and across the summer night. And this is what she said. But that's not fair. Now, I find it very interesting, Pastor Garen, that when I made a minute ago the categorical statement I made about the eternal destiny of people who live and die without ever having heard about Jesus, nobody here at 12th Avenue Baptist Church on this Sunday morning, nobody here stood up and said, that's not fair. And the reason why they didn't is because you're not supposed to talk back to the preacher. But some of you thought it. Oh, yes, you did. In fact, I can imagine one of you taking me aside after this worship service is over and saying, Dr. Murray, I'd like to have a little chat with you. And this is you talking to me. Dr. Murray, uh, I've been in this church all my life. I was born into a Christian family. My parents know and love Jesus, and they told me about Jesus and they taught me the way of salvation. And, and I'm just so grateful that as a child, I gave my heart to the Lord. And, and I've grown up in a wonderful Christian family. And, and I'll never forget when our next door neighbors moved in. And uh, I mean, the minute they moved in, my mom went over there and knocked on their front door and welcomed them to the neighborhood and asked them if there's any way we could help them get settled. And for the last 10 years, we have shared our lives with our next-door neighbors. We've taken them meals. We've had them over to our place to eat. Um, we've brought them to the church for the Christmas program. We've shared our personal testimony with them. One night, we all gathered in our family room, and we watched Billy Graham on cable TV. We gave them a Bible. And for the last 10 years, our next-door neighbors here in Emporia have flatly refused anything we've tried to tell them about Jesus. And Dr. Murray, I believe that if my neighbors here in Emporia 
were to die tonight, and I'm not God, and I don't know people's hearts, but based on their rejection of everything we've tried to tell them, I believe that if my neighbors here in Emporia would die tonight, they would spend forever in hell. But people that have never met a Christian, the Bible is an unknown book. The cross is an unknown symbol. Christmas and Easter are not in their calendar. While we wait for the second coming of Jesus, they've never heard of the first. That's not fair. So we come back to the question. How can Jesus Christ claim to be the only way of salvation for the whole world? And the answer is for two reasons. And I'd like you to write this down. Number one, because of who Jesus is. And number two, because of what Jesus did. Now, many churches, including Baptist churches, have as training in their congregation, a catechism. Have you ever heard of a catechism? And a catechism is a list of questions and answers that helps people understand the basic teaching or doctrines of the Bible. And there's what we call a longer catechism, and there's a shorter catechism. But this morning, I want to create a shorter, shorter catechism, and it only has two questions. And the first question is this, who is Jesus Christ. And the second question is, what did Jesus Christ do? And we're going to see later how these two things go together. So let's take the first question and answer it briefly. Here's the question, who is Jesus Christ? And the answer is, he is God. Now watch, not just like God, not just the way to God, not just the greatest human being who ever lived, but God Almighty himself, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus Christ is God. Now let's go to the second question. What did Jesus Christ do? Answer, he died on Calvary's cross for the sins of the whole world. Now we're going to see tonight that the Bible calls this one act of Christ's death on the cross, the Bible calls it the most important event in human history. We're going to see that tonight. This is why Jesus came. This is what Jesus did. And when we realize who it was who died there, we understand his categorical claim to be the only way of salvation. Can I just say this? The cross makes absolutely no 
sense at all if Jesus is not God. So what did Jesus Christ do? He died on Calvary's cross for the sins of the whole world. So let's answer this first question just a little bit more in detail this morning. Who is Jesus Christ? And the answer is, Jesus is God. Do you believe that? I'm not going to tell you anything new over the next few minutes, but I want you to let the cumulative effect of biblical evidence wash over your soul in a fresh recognition of who it is we say we believe and follow. So put your seatbelt on. We're going to go quickly, but here we go. God's Word teaches, first of all, Christ's eternal pre-existence. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Listen carefully. There was never a time that Jesus Christ was not. There was never a time that Jesus Christ was not God. His eternal pre-existence. Secondly, the Bible teaches Christ's virgin birth. Miraculous virgin birth. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The Bible teaches, moreover, Christ's sinless life. Isaiah, John, Paul, Peter, the writer of the book of Hebrews, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clearly declare that Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed. His sinless life. The Bible teaches, God's word teaches, moreover, Christ's vicarious death. We're going to talk about more, more about this tonight. But that simply means that he, the guiltless one, died for us, the guilty ones. We're going to look at that more closely. Going on, God's word teaches Christ's bodily resurrection. You remember when Jesus walked here on the earth, his enemy said, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all these things? Do you remember what he said? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then we read in the biblical text, it says this, this spoke he of his body. And the book of Romans says in the opening verses that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The Bible teaches Christ's glorious ascension. And right in the middle of his letter to Timothy, Paul can't even wait to the end. He just breaks out in a doxology, and he writes these words in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Beyond all question, great is the mystery of godliness. God, he's speaking about Jesus, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the nations, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Let's go on. Jesus healed the sick. He made the lame to walk. 
the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak. He touched and cleansed lepers. He restored sight to the blind. He forgave sins. Let's just stop with that for a minute. And so we're, we find ourselves in a, in a crowded room, and all of a sudden we hear noise up on the roof, and somebody's up there breaking the roof up, and then this opening happens, and we see four men up there who brought their friend who's lame, cannot walk, lying on a pallet, and they let him down by ropes into the front of the room where Jesus is standing, and Jesus, looking at the lame man, says to him, Son, your sins be forgiven. And the cold-hearted, theologically correct Pharisees sitting in the front row nudge each other and say, This man speaks blasphemy. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, looks at them and says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your bed, and walk? But I tell you that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Son, get up, take your bed, and go home. And he did. Jesus is God. Jesus raised the dead. And when we think of that, we think most commonly of Lazarus in John chapter 11, but my favorite resurrection story is Luke chapter 7, where we have a widow woman who only has one young adult son, and her young adult son dies, and the funeral is over, and they're on their way with the body to the cemetery, and coming the other direction is Jesus with his disciples. This is all in Luke chapter 7, and Jesus stops the procession scandalizes the Jewish audience by putting his hand on the coffin of the dead man, raises him back to life, gives him back to his mother. And we read at the end of that passage in Luke chapter 7, and all the people said, God has visited his people. Jesus is God. Do you believe that? Let's go on. The demons recognized Christ's deity. Behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? And in Mark chapter 1, I love that little verse tucked away right at the end of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. It says this, Jesus did not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. The enemies of Jesus Christ recognized his deity. And I put two verses on the screen, and I'd like you to look this up in your Bible now. John chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. And while you're finding that, let me ask you a question. Why do you think Jesus' enemies wanted to and then succeeded in killing him? Why did they want to kill him? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that it was not because of his scathing denunciations of their hypocrisy, as withering and convicting as they were, I'd like to suggest that it's not because he was upstaging them with his miracles. I'd like to suggest that it was not because he was casting out demons, because they were doing that. It was for one reason and one reason alone, and that's because Jesus himself claimed to be God. Look at these verses in John chapter 10. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. 
for which of these do you stone me? Now look at verse 33. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And it is true that Jesus claimed to be God. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And I'm putting two verses on the screen under the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. Here they are, John chapter 5, verse 18, and John chapter 8, verse 58. Now, I hope you memorize Scripture. Do you ever memorize Scripture? It's such a great exercise. And I'd like to suggest that if you memorize verses in the Bible, these are two you, you can't leave out of your memory list. You've got to memorize these two verses. So let's look at the first one, John chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what it says. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, I remember when I first, you know, really thought about this verse, and I scratched my head and I said, so what's the big deal? I mean, I've told many people that God is my father, and they've never tried to kill me. <laughs> And I've told many people that I am a son of God. And by the way, I have every right to call myself that, and so do you if you belong to Jesus, because in John chapter 1, we read these words, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to call themselves the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. So I've told many people I'm a son of God, I'm a child of God, God's my father, they never try to kill me. Why did they try to kill Jesus when he said that? Well, look at the verse, and you'll notice that I've highlighted the word own before the word father. Now, in the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written, the word own is the Greek word idion, idion, from which through derivation in the English language, we get words like idiom or idiosyncrasy. And the word idion means, listen, peculiar unique in a way that nothing else is. So when Jesus calls God his idion patera, his enemies knew exactly what he meant, and that's why they tried to kill him. He was claiming total equality with God. Now look at John chapter 8, verse 58. Another good verse to memorize. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I remember the first time I read this verse in the Roman Catholic Bible. And you might be saying, what are you reading the Roman Catholic Bible for? Well, I was a missionary in Italy. Everybody in Italy is a Catholic. You're born a Catholic. So I thought, if I'm going to work with Roman Catholic people and share the gospel... I need to see what the Roman Catholic Bible says. And so I read the Roman Catholic Bible. And when I came to John 8:58, I sort of scratched my head. I said, I wonder why they translated it this way. And this is what the Roman Catholic Bible says. Amen, amen, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. So instead of, I tell you the truth, they have the word amen, A-M-E-N, twice. Amen, amen, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And I thought, what did the Catholics say that for? It sounds rather liturgical. 
And then I realized that they, the translators of the Roman Catholic Bible, had translated from the Greek, had transliterated the actual Greek into English. Because in the Greek, it says, Amen, Amen. That's the Greek word for the word we say, Amen. And it occurs twice. Now, let me just say a word for just a second about Bible translators, because you do support people with organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translators and other Bible translation groups, and I'm so glad you do. It's one of the most critical works in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, the Bible in people's languages. And when you pray for Bible translators, let me tell you, they've got one of the hardest jobs in the world. Did you realize that if you're a Bible translator, you have to know your own language well? Secondly, you have to know Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, the trade language of the country where you're serving, and then the tribal language, often something that you yourself have to construct because it's never been put into writing, before you start to translate the Bible. So Bible translation is a very difficult task because what they need to do is represent truly exactly what the original tent was, intent was when the Bible writers wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All that to say, and far be it from me to, you know, criticize Bible translators because I'm not a Bible translator, but I do think, and by the way, this is from the NIV translation, the New International Version. I think the translators of the New International Version missed the mark here. You know, who am I to tell, you know, but and I'll tell you why. Because they say, I tell you the truth. Now watch, the word amen, which is the Greek word that's used here, and, you know, the Catholics transliterated it into amen, and that's correct. The word occurs twice in the Greek text. It occurs twice. And to say, I tell you the truth, is a proper rendering of the Greek word amen, because it means it is true. That's what the word means. It is true. Or I tell you the truth. You may have a Bible that says truly, truly. Or you may have a Bible that says verily, verily. That's the Greek word amen. And in the Greek text, it occurs twice. So the NIV translator should have said, I tell you the truth, comma, I tell you the truth. Because Jesus said it twice, therefore we need to translate it twice. Now listen carefully. The double amen in the Bible only occurs in the Gospel of John. It's the only book in the Bible that has the double amen. And it only occurs on the lips of the Lord Jesus. He's the only person who ever said it. The double amen. And he always said it just before he made a statement that he knew his listeners would not believe. In fact, I like to imagine that uh, Jesus whispered something to himself under his breath every time he used the double amen. I'd like to imagine that Jesus said this to himself. Now, you're not going to believe this. But it's true. It's true. Amen. Amen. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. And then he'd make the astounding statement. Let me give you an example. Nicodemus. Anybody remember him? John chapter 3, the Pharisee that came to Jesus at night. Remember this? 
Jesus says to Nicodemus, now Nicodemus, you're not going to believe this. Now, that's not in the text, but I just kind of imagine that Jesus is thinking that, you know. And then he says this to Nicodemus. It's true. It's true. Amen. Amen. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you remember the reaction of Nicodemus? He said, what? Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I knew you were going to say that. That's why I started with it's true, it's true. Amen, amen. Are you following me? All right, let's try it one more time. Gentlemen, my closest colleagues who've walked with me for three years through thick and thin, you who are reclining with me this holy night around this sacred meal just before I go to the cross, Jesus said to his disciples, gentlemen, you're not going to believe this, but it's true, it's true, amen, amen, verily, verily, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. And we read in the biblical text that all the disciples looked at each other, doubting of whom he spoke. They didn't believe it. Now, here Jesus does it again in John chapter 8, verse 58. He says, now, you're not going to believe this. But it's true, it's true. Before Abraham was born, I am. Let me ask you a question. Don't you think if on this occasion Jesus had said, before Abraham was born, I was, would he not have been correct? Could he have said, before Abraham was born, I was? Would he not have been correct? Yes, he would have been correct. But he doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, quite apart from the fact that Jesus is doubtless identifying himself here with what we in theology call the tetragrammaton of the Old Testament, that's referring to the incident in the Old Testament where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Remember that? And then he tells him to go to Egypt and free the Egyptians, and Moses says, well, who do, I, who do I tell Pharaoh has sent me? Remember that? And the Lord Jehovah God says, tell Pharaoh that I am has sent you. So Jesus is doubtless identifying himself with the Jehovah God of the Old Testament. But even beyond that, he is here making a literal statement. And to illustrate this, I want you to imagine with me a, an invisible straight line that goes right across this room, right here in front of the platform, straight to that wall, and then out as far as you can see, and then straight to that wall, out as far as you can see, and this invisible line represents time. And that end of the line is time past, and that end of the line is time future, and the middle of the line is the present moment. Everybody with me? Jesus is speaking in the present moment, and he says this. Now, you're not going to believe this, but it's true, it's true. And then he refers to something in the past. He refers to the birth of Abraham. So he's speaking here in the present moment. He says, you're not going to believe this, but it's true, it's true. Before Abraham was born, all right, so that's back here. Here's the birth of Abraham. Jesus is speaking in the present moment, but he's talking about the birth of Abraham back here. So this is what he does. This is what he says. Watch. He says, you're not going to believe this, but it's true, it's true. Before Abraham was born, I am now. 
before Abraham was born. Question, how could Jesus Christ say that? Answer, he cannot say that if he is not God. When we speak of God, we often speak of him in terms of his omni-attributes. Do you know what I mean by the omni-attributes of God? God is omnipotent. What does that mean? He can do anything. God is omniscient. What does that mean? He knows everything. God is omnipresent. What does that mean? He's everywhere at the same time. All right. Uh, today's Sunday, Friday. Uh, my wife and I drove to the Columbia, South Carolina airport so that I could fly here. I flew to Atlanta and then Atlanta, Kansas City, then came here uh, by ground transportation. Um, uh, Pastor Ben picked me up and, and brought me here in a car. So Friday, when we uh, drove to the airport, um, we did what we have done as a married couple, I can't tell you how many times. We pulled into the airport to the kiss and fly circle, and we stopped the car, and then I got out, because I was driving, my wife got out, she was in the passenger seat, we walked around the back, opened the trunk, I got my carry-on out, put it on the ground, and then we hugged, and we kissed, and we prayed together. We've done it countless times. And then I walked into the airport, and she drove home. And as I walked into the airport, like I have done so many times, this is what I said to myself. Isn't it wonderful to know that the Lord is staying with her, and he's coming with me. I mean, how awesome is that? But now watch. Most of us, when we think about the omnipresence of God, we restrict that wonderful truth to the concept of space. But it is equally true in the realm of time. Therefore, when we speak of the Lord, it's not only correct to say that he is, that he was, and that he will be, but it's also correct to say that he is is. He is was, and he is will be. All that he was, he still is. All that he will be, he already is. He's God. Jesus Christ is God. That's why in Psalm 90, Moses says, listen, talking about the Lord, he says this, from everlasting to everlasting, present tense, you are God. What an awesome statement. And that's why Isaiah tells us that he is the eternal one who inhabits eternity. Jesus Christ is God. Do you believe that? Now, um, I'm going to ask our PowerPoint people to skip the next slide because of time, and uh, maybe I'll come back to this tonight just briefly, but I want us to review our two questions that we started with. How can Jesus claim to be the only way of salvation for the whole world? For two reasons. Number one, because of who he is. Number two, because of what he did. So here's the first question. Who is Jesus Christ? Answer, Jesus is God. 
Second question, what did Jesus Christ do? Answer, Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross for the sins of the whole world. Look with me again at what Jesus says about himself categorically. He says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now tonight, and I can't wait, but I have to. Tonight, we're going to engage in the importance of seeing how who Jesus is, how who Jesus is, and how what Jesus did go together. Now I'm just I'm going to pray, but let me just. This is such a burden in my heart. I've got to just say this before I pray. I think most of the people sitting in this room, and I don't know most of you, but if you're a regular attender or member of this church, I don't think you have any problem with my teaching on the fact that Jesus is God. You believe that Jesus is God. And that's what the Bible teaches. All right. And I think it would also be fair to say that most of you here would say with great conviction that you believe that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross for the sins of the whole world. So you believe Jesus is God, and you believe that he died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. What many of you have never done is put those two truths together. Because only when we take those two truths together and realize that it was God himself who died on that cross. Only then can Jesus make the exclusive claim that there is no other way of salvation for the whole world. And we're going to see that tonight. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for 12th Avenue Baptist Church and the amazing impact that world missions has felt through this local congregation. Thank you for all the missionaries that are here this week. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are God. We worship you. We bow down before you. We surrender to you. You are God. Help us to see as we study your word tonight how the statement of Jesus that there is no other way is verified by who he is and what he did. And then, Lord, help us not to just leave saying, oh, man, I learned some new theology and this was great teaching. Lord, help us to ask ourselves the question, if Jesus is the only way, what about all the people in the world that are still waiting to hear about him for the first time? And from among this congregation, I pray that you would raise up new workers, men, women, couples, to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.